Well, good morning, church. It's a pleasure to have each and every one of you with us this morning. I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. If you haven't been with us, we've been in a series uh, for the last uh, month or so, uh, looking at this obscure and many times uh, neglected uh, book of the Bible. In fact, it's one of the uh, books of the Bible that have just a real special place, I think, in the heart and mind of God. Because in this book, in these three chapters, nowhere in all of Scripture... Do we have a book that is completely and utterly dedicated to a conversation between God and one of his children? There's no dialogue between two people outside of God and Habakkuk the prophet. And we are getting an inside view, an inside look at what it means to communicate with our God and and how to communicate even at times when it seems like we don't like the answers or we don't like the way our lives or our circumstances are going. And we've been learning from the prophet what it means to wait patiently on the Lord, what it means to say, Lord, it's not about me. Lord, it's not about my comfort. Lord, it's not about what I think is best, but to give myself wholly and completely and utterly uh, into his hands and say, Lord, do with me as you will. Allow uh, my life Uh, to be a submissive offering to you. So wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, no matter what circumstances you bring in my life, I am going to be ready to respond in obedience. And we've been learning about this uh, over uh, these last weeks, and it has been so refreshing to see that uh, the world doesn't revolve around us. Habakkuk reminds us that uh, we are not the king of the universe. We are not the one uh, that gets to determine how our life goes. And so that propels us, and in fact it compels us, uh, to turn to our God, to turn to Him, and to seek His answers, and to seek His peace uh, when trouble comes our way. And what we've been learning in this series, as, as we have gone through it verse by verse, is that Habakkuk lived during a time of great violence and treachery. We learned that in chapter 1, in a world of great tribulation. And it would seem as if the world was out of control. And how true is that for us today? We live in a time where we open up our news feeds and we see all kinds of trouble, all kinds of turmoil, all kinds of clashes, not only here in our country, but we see great treachery and great destruction, people mowing uh, people down with their vehicles. I mean, these are heartbreaking times that we live in, a time as a country where we're more disunified than ever before. And, and many of us look at the world and say, God, where are you? God, you say you're the one in control. God, you say you're the one that has everything all figured out. But it sure does seem like evil is prevailing and righteousness is losing. It sure does seem that the world is just a place of total and utter anarchy, that you are not in control. But as we've learned, that was the days of Habakkuk. And what God articulates very clearly to his prophet and what he declares to us today is amidst great chaos, never forget God is in control. Don't ever forget that. When you look at uh, the book of Habakkuk in the years to come, when someone says, have you ever done anything in that book? You can say, what I've learned from that book is when the world is in chaos, God is in control. Because if you get that figured out, Your life is going to be a whole lot easier to live 
Because you're going to let God deal with the stuff he needs to deal with, and obedience is going to be the thing you will find yourself most worried about. You don't have to figure out all of the wrongs. You don't have to address all of the injustices in the world. You say, God, you're the ruler, you're the creator, you are the controller of all things, and I give that to you for you to do your work so that I can be the obedient one. And that's what we see in the life of Habakkuk. He lets God do his job so he can do his. Well, we get to Habakkuk chapter 3 this morning. If you haven't gotten there yet, if you don't have a Bible, grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you, and you can find our passage on page 786. Page 786. It is in chapter 3 that this book is coming to an end. We'll finish it up next week, and I'm looking forward uh, on September 10th to kick off a new series uh, entitled Unfinished from the Book of Acts. It's what we'll be going through in our small groups. Really excited about it. Already started writing the study guide for it, and it would be uh, really, really uh, great for you to be a part of that. But as we close out this series, we see that God is going to give a vision to his prophet. It's a vision that is so amazing It's a vision that in some ways is so frightening. You see, what God does is he unveils a bit of the of the curtain, allows the prophet to see into what God has done, is doing, and is going to do. And he shares that with his prophet. And notice the response of the prophet, and we'll address this next week, but I want you to see this in verse 16 of chapter 3. He says, I hear, I I hear your vision, God. I've seen what you're going to do, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. He's uneasy. He's sick to his stomach. Literally, he he feels just undone. He goes on, my legs beneath me tremble. But he says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. I'm going to wait on you, Lord. Amidst all of this that you've declared to me, I'm going to wait And I want you to notice that Habakkuk has learned what it means to live by faith. In Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, we are declared by God that the righteous will live by faith. You call yourself a child of God. The way that you prove that is not in your profession. The way you prove that isn't in an activity that you've done, whether baptism or or communion or, or coming forward at a church service. The way you show that you are a child of God is you live by faith. And Habakkuk has has done that. And how does he prove that? He is able to deal with the trials and tribulations of his life. And it does not cause him to fall. He's not consumed. He does not fear. He does not dread. He's not anxious for anything. What does a man who is led by faith do? He prays. In Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he has been given bad news before him, and it's troubling news that's going to change the way he understands life. It's going to change the way he and his neighbors live life. It is going to bring great difficulty to his future. And you don't see him freak out. You don't see him get all worked up into knots. But what he does is he gets on his knees, and notice in chapter 3, what we are given is a prayer. A prayer. And in the midst of this text, of this prayer, we're going to see what it means for us to live by faith under the heading that I'd like to call revival. 
revival. But let's look at the text and then we will jump into our message this morning. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to the Shigionoth. Say that to your person next to you. Shigionoth. Okay? You stump your toe later today. You kick that uh, that Lego, and what should come out of your mouth? Shigionoth. Okay? We'll talk about what that means in a moment, all right? So this prayer is according to the Shigionoth. O Lord... I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst, uh, in, in wrath, remember mercy. And we're going to stop there because his prayer will continue to go on. He will see the works of God because God will speak in that moment in his prayer. But let's stop at these two verses and let's see what God has to say to us this morning. But let's pray. Father God, we ask for your time uh, to be a time that honors you. In this moment, Lord, I pray that we would allow all of the other things of the world uh, to pass by. And that just like this book, our time together this morning would be a time where you, God, can speak to your people. That there's no other dialogue, no other correspondence. It's just a conversation between the eternal, holy, righteous, mighty, great, awesome God and His broken and frailed and finite and, and needy people. Remind us of the relationship that we have with You. That we can come to You when struggles come. That we can come to You when we don't have the answer. And You are the God who addresses all those things. And we ask, Lord, that as you do, we would give you all the glory for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the middle of this two-verse sermon, I want you to notice this morning one word that I want to focus in on. The verse is found in uh, verse 2. In verse 2 he says, In the midst of the years, revive it. Revive it. That word revive is an important word. If you don't know what the word revive is, let me help you out. The word revive simply is to restore something to life. Something that is dead. Something that is obsolete. Something that is broken. uh, Being fashioned, put together, repaired, restored back to life. To good working order. Habakkuk says, God, uh, our spirituality is broken. The people of Judah are no longer following you. The people of Judah are no longer making you a priority. The people of Judah are pursuing other things and and other gods. And and God, I want you to change that. God, I want you to take the dead religion that we have and I want you to make it anew. I want you to make it fresh again. God, I want you to do a work of the Spirit that revives the heart of the people. Now, this word revive is where we get the churchy word, revival. If you've been around the church for some time, you've heard the word revival. We need a good revival. And some of you grew up in church traditions where revival was a week of services where you didn't just go to church on Sunday, but Sunday night and Monday night and Tuesday night and Wednesday night. And and you were a part of all of these services that focus one week of the year on this idea of getting right with God. 
Others know of revivals as big evangelistic events, uh, usually held by a guy named Billy Graham, where, where thousands of people would enter into these stadiums and they would hear a message about Jesus as the Savior and how by faith and repentance you can come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And there would be this moment at the end of the revival where people would come forward and pray with people and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. All of those things uh, are, are in some ways a level of revival. But revival is far greater than that. It is not just an isolated experience. It's more than just an extra week of, of services. It's more than just hype and manifestations. But what it literally is is a flash or a glimpse of the glory of God. Now what is the glory of God? The glory of God, listen, the glory of God or a glimpse of the glory of God is the idea that here on earth we see what is taking place in heaven. We see God as the angels see him in glory. We see him as all-powerful, all-knowing, great and majestic. We get a glimpse of that. In essence, revival is when an individual is gripped by the idea of who God is, who is on his throne. Now, I want you to notice why this revival is such an important thing. In chapter 2, verse 14, we are told that God is in a perpetual state of revival here on earth. Notice in verse 14 of chapter 2, for the whole earth will be filled. It's a futuristic phrase, will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God is doing a work, and He will continue to do a work, where His glory, His renown, all of who He is will be made known as the waters cover the earth. It will be known by all. I want you to notice at the end of chapter 2, but the Lord is in His holy temple. A revived heart doesn't see God with all of the distractions of the temporal world around him, but he sees God as Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6, high and lifted up in his temple, being worshipped by the angels, and being set back and in some ways dumbfounded by the greatness of God. And so we see God when we are revived, we see God in his holy temple, and what is our response? Let all the earth keep silence before him. And so we see this glimpse of God, this glimpse of His glory, while here on earth, and it changes the way we understand God, but quite frankly, it changes the way we understand our lives. Habakkuk is experiencing revival. And in this revival, it has changed the way he understands his circumstances, and it changes the way he understands his Creator. What revival does is in a world broken by sin, God heals, restores, and changes everything. The heart of revival is far less about the crowds or the preacher. It is more a holy moment between a person and God. I wanted a definition of revival, and I turned to one of my favorite authors, J.I. Packer. And J.I. Packer put it this way. He said, revival is God touching minds and hearts in an arresting, devastating, exalting way. Arresting, it grips our heart. Devastating, it shatters who we are as individuals. It breaks down these presuppositions that we have that we're God when we're not. It shows us that we're finite and frail and flawed. And it points us then 
after we have been arrested and devastated to God and we see God as brilliant and great and awesome. And then revival causes us to draw ourselves to Him. And it's done by the working from the inside out, not the outside in. It starts in our heart. And Habakkuk has been moved in his heart. He has seen the greatness of God. He has seen his issues as big and as troublesome as they are. They are of no match to the great God who resides in glory on His throne in the holy temple. And so he says, listen, I've got a glimpse of God. And whether or not I think the world is out of control or not, it really doesn't matter because I know of a God and I have a relationship with a God who has a plan. And that God is executing that plan in perfection. He's the God who's on the throne. He's the God whose glory is filling the whole earth. He's a God whose very presence will cause everyone on the earth to stand in silence. God is great. Therefore, my problems are small. One of the things that you need to recognize is you may not be experiencing revival if your problems are bigger than God. If you look at your problems, and how do you know if your problems are bigger than God? Are you worrying about them? Are you complaining about them? Are you fretting and and all your life's decisions based on that problem that you never are praying, you're never in conversation with God, you're never seeking out His wisdom through His Word, but you're always focused in on the problem, then your problems are God and God is something less than those. And so we need to ask the question this morning, has revival taken place in our lives? This encounter would change Habakkuk. And listen, God wants to do the same thing for you and I. Habakkuk is nothing of any greatness beyond who we are. He's a man just like us. But for in order for us to see God in all of His grandeur and glory, we need to take what we know of Him and by faith apply that to our lives. But to do so, it means that the righteous will need to live by faith. What does that look like? Some years ago, Amanda and I watched a TV program called Friday Night Lights. It was about a high school football team from Texas and the ups and downs and the drama of, uh, of high school football in Texas. We have football here, but from those that live in Texas, I find out we don't have football. We play other games besides football. Football's king in Texas. And one of the things that I loved about the program is I really came to really enjoy the coach. He was a frailed man, but he was humble. He seemingly was honest. He was a good, a good man trying to do a good work. And one of the things that I loved about uh, him was the motto that he had. And I think it's a motto that fits well if you were to put it into the spiritual realm. It's what revival is all about. He, he put this motto this way for his football team. Clear eyes full heart, can't lose. Clear eyes, full heart, can't lose. I want you to know this morning what revival is, what Habakkuk was experiencing was clear eyes. Gone were the distractions, gone were his fears or his anxieties or his concern. He had a clear picture of who God was. God was very, very big in his mind. God had proven himself to be a God who could handle every circumstance of life. He had clear eyes. 
He had a full heart that had impacted him. It had moved him to a place of worship. He no longer was worrying. Now he was worshiping. He no longer was uh, full of fright. He was now filled with faith. It had changed who he was. And because he had clear eyes, because he had a full heart, he recognized God can't lose. God can't lose. So admits cancer, God can't lose. Admits racism, God can't lose. Admits uh, worldwide turmoil and war, God can't lose. Admits our problems and our troubling situations, God can't lose. You want to know if you're living a life of revival? How's your vision? How's your heart? Do you believe God is the God who can't lose? That is what Habakkuk has. So how does he get there? Notice there are three things that I see about this awesome change in the prophet's life. Number one, what I see is that he turns to God in humility, and that's what we need to do. He turns to God in humility. Now chapter 2, quite frankly, from the middle of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2, Habakkuk has heard from God about some pretty serious stuff. God is going to bring judgment and discipline first upon his people and then on the enemies of the nation of Israel. And there's not a lot of good that's going on. God is going to bring the pain. Now, Habakkuk could have done many different things. He could have fought it and said, I'm not going to follow you, God. He could have been so feared with fright that he would just run away from it. Or he could make the decision by faith to sit and listen and believe and obey the words of the Lord. He does the latter. He shows us what the righteous are supposed to do. Admits difficult news, pray. Now a couple of things that I want you to see. Why is prayer so important and what keeps us from prayer? Number one, if we want to have this kind of response by, by t- turning to God in humility... It means getting rid of the distractions. We've got to get rid of the distractions. Okay, The news that he's about to get is difficult. It's news that would turn his world upside down. It's news that, in essence, would put a big lump in his throat. But here's the thing. We look at the passage and it says he prays. What kind of prayer does he pray? According to the Shigionoth. Okay, there's that funny word that you can use sometime today, shigionoth. Now, this word is only used twice in all of Scripture, here in Habakkuk chapter 3 and Psalm 1. And this word, historians don't know exactly where it came from. They're not sure uh, its entomology, uh, the origin of the word. But what they do know is what the word means. It's a musical term. And it has not so much to do with an instrument. It's not uh, he's uh, praying a prayer according to the guitar, according to the drum or the piano. But what it's speaking of is the tone, the meter, or the tempo of the song. What it's talking about is the kind of song that it is. It was a musical term that spoke, most commentaries believe, of a song that had strong emotion, erratic wandering of notes and melodies and could be characterized as wild tumult. The song was compared, uh, if you will, uh, to a violent storm filled with all kinds of, of uh, 
erratic movements and, and all of that. Some of you listen as you're walking down the hallway. You hear your kids' music playing. And I want you to know the music that you hear them, that you can't understand a word of it, it's a song of the Shigionoth, okay? I don't know what they're saying. It's a Shigionoth type of song. That headbanging music, you know, one of the things that is gone now, kids don't bl- blast music. Back in the day, you wanted to create a, a uh, Richter scale um, tsunami of sound when I was a teenager. Big speakers and all of that. Now they got them on their ears, right? But my mom would come in and say, what is that man even talking about? I'd say, mom, it's music by the Shigianoffs. <laughs> she didn't buy it, by the way. But what is happening here is he's saying, listen, my prayer is going to go in tempo with this erratic type of song. It's all over the place. It's messy. It doesn't seem to have a rhyme or reason to it. It doesn't seem to follow a beat. It's all over the place. In fact, in Psalm chapter 7, there's a similar theme that goes on. In Habakkuk chapter 3, We've got earthquakes, crumbling mountains, pestilence, floods, arrows, spears, and all kinds of calamity. In Psalm 7, we have vicious lions, trampled lives, rage, swords. We have flaming arrows and violence. We have all kinds of trouble. This is a troublesome song. One commentator said, what Habakkuk is singing and praying about is a time of great upheaval. His world has been turned upside down. And in that moment, he's got to rid himself of the distractions of the moments in his life, and he needs to turn his attention somewhere else, because if he doesn't, he's going to be undone. When we were on our honeymoon uh, in uh, Florida, Amanda and I uh, had the bright idea, let me just share, I had the bright idea of chartering a fishing boat and going out into the ocean, and I had this great picture of me sitting in one of those chairs with the rod and reel and and hooking myself this beautiful swordfish okay and that's where i paid the big money and amanda you're going to watch your new husband do this because he's good at everything and uh, i didn't catch anything not a single thing but you know what i caught seasickness okay and we're in this little boat and we're out in the ocean and we're going up and then we're down and we're up And we're down, and we're left, and we're right. And as we're going up, my stomach's down. As we're going down, my stomach's up, and I'm turning green. And and the, the captain of the boat can see it, and he's like, listen, you're bad for business. If you start puking all over the place, this is no good. This isn't gonna do well on Facebook, and I'm dying. I am dying. All of the thoughts of doing anything were out the door. Why? Because my life was in upheaval. The captain said something to me in that moment. And it's the only thing I think I remember. He said, you got to quit focusing in on the waves. Cut it out. Focusing in on the waves are only going to make you sicker. So stop. I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? He says, put your attention, listen, this is great, put your attention on something fixed. Stop looking at the variables of life, the waves up and down, and get on a constant. 
get your attention off of all the upheaval around you and focus in on something that's immovable, something that isn't going to cause you to continue to be dizzied. And you know what? I did that. And everything changed. And I said, listen, I told the guy, I said, the the waters got calmer. He says, no. He said, your focus just got better. And some of us right now are like me with the turmoil of life, the troubles of life. Some of it's personal, and maybe it's because of medical reports, or maybe it's because of an emergency that's taken place, or it's the job, or it's finances, or, or it's your marriage, and, and you're up, and you're down, and you're left, and you're right, and you're sick to your stomach. And you're filled with all kinds of dread. The very purpose of your experience is thrown out the door. I was out there to catch a marlin, a swordfish. That was gone. I never touched a fishing pole that day. I held on to the side thinking I'm going to die. And some of you this morning have given up God's calling for you because you're there and you're just like, I'm going to throw up at some point. This is more than I can bear. And Habakkuk is saying what the captain of that little boat said to me. Get your eyes off the waves, the circumstances of life, and start focusing in on the only immovable object in our world. And listen, the only immovable object isn't your wealth, it isn't your marriage, it isn't your children, it isn't your job, it isn't Washington, D.C. It is God and God alone. So when you focus in on Him, the waves continue to go back and forth, but your constant now has you even keeled. Get rid of the distractions. Number two, you need to recognize your dependency. You need to recognize your dependency. Amidst a life of shigianoth, erratic moves and all of that, you need to recognize this morning that you need God in your life. You need God each and every day. It has been said this way, may I never forget that on my best day, I still need God as desperately as I did on my worst day. Let me say that again. May I never forget that on my best day, I need God as desperately as I did on my worst day. Habakkuk recognizes, I need you, God. And in this prayer, this shigianoth of a prayer, this erratic prayer because of an erratic life and erratic circumstances, this wild ride that God has him on, he focuses on God, a prayer that he prays, and notice twice in verse 2, he says, O Lord. O Lord. If you notice in there, everything is capitalized. This is a proper name of God. This is the holy name of God. What he is saying is this is Yahweh. We just sang about that. We just shouted that name as a congregation. Yahweh. Now some of you who maybe are new to church, you're like, what is that? I'm singing and it's English and then we went to a whole new language. Who are we shouting? What is this Yahweh we're shouting about? This doesn't make any sense. Yahweh, so you know is the covenant name of God. This is the name when Moses says, who are you? Who sends me? I need to tell people who I'm going for. God says, tell them I am. I'm Yahweh. And I am your God. This is the relational name of God. This is in many ways. My dad's proper name is William. His friends call him Bill. I call him Dad. Yahweh 
is our dad. He's the relational, I'm, I, it's an intimate thing. There's not many people that get to call him dad. I, I am one of just a handful of people. My, myself, my wife get to call him that. My brother and his wife get to call my dad that. It's a relational, it's a covenant name that I get to share with my father. Yahweh is us as children crying out to our God, who God says, you don't have to call me Jehovah. You don't have to call me by my attributes. What you get to call me because you're a child of mine, you're in my family, is you get to call me Yahweh. You get to call me Yahweh. And what takes place here is he says, listen, O Lord, I need you. And what I need you for is to remind me that your promises will ring true even when the going gets tough. In essence, what he's saying is, God, I know tough times are coming, and I just want to make sure that the promises you made to the patriarchs, the promises you made to the other prophets, Lord, remind me that those promises are true. We do this when we read the Scriptures. And I'll talk about this in a moment, but... But we read what Paul tells the Romans, that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. We read that um, uh, all things happen for the good of those who God loves and are called according to His purpose. We hear that and we recognize, God, we need you in this moment. We are of utter dependency on you. And so when trouble comes, I need to know I'm helpless without God. And that's why I turn to the great and powerful God, because He cares for me. At the end of the last uh, two, two centuries ago, the, in 1870, a man by the name of Horatio Spafford was a man from Chicago. He was a businessman. He had uh, become a close associate of D.L. Moody, uh, the founder of Moody Bible Institute and uh, one of the first pastors of Moody Church. And, and he had come to really have a friendship with D.L. Moody. And after the Chicago fire that decimated most of his investments, he made a decision that he, his wife, and their four children would get on an ocean liner and head to Great Britain to follow D.L. Moody in these evangelistic crusades that Moody was going to do that fall. As he was preparing to leave, an emergency in one of his businesses took place that forced him to have to take a, a later ocean liner. So he put his wife and his four daughters on the ocean liner, kissed them goodbye and said, listen, I will be there in a couple weeks. And he sent them on their way. A telegram comes a couple weeks later from his wife in England. And it says, I alone survived. The ocean liner went down. Horatio Spafford's four daughters would be killed in the capsizing and shipwreck of the ocean liner. His wife would barely make it. She'd be found floating in the ocean after a period of what many have said is anywhere from 36 to 50 hours at open sea, holding on to just a piece of debris. He would then get on the ocean liner that he said he was going to, and he's traveling by, and the captain comes to him midway through, and he says, this is where the ocean liner went down. Think about it for a moment. You think you're having a hard Sunday. Try swallowing the loss of your four daughters, age 11 to age 2. Horatio Spafford, he's not a prophet. Horatio Spafford, he's not an angel. Horatio Spafford is a man just like you and I, lived not too far from here on the north side of Chicago. 
And Horatio Spafford reminds us, you don't even know the name Horatio Spafford, far, far, far too many of you may not know that name. But if you've been around church, you know the hymn that he wrote. He articulates these words as the ship goes by the very place where his four daughters would be lost. Horatio Spafford makes it very clear when he says the following. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when storms like sea billows roll, he goes on and he says, listen, this is no good. And he says, whatever my lot, God, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. You see, when we turn to God and trouble comes, the righteous will live by faith. What will happen is God will not take away our problems. God didn't resurrect the four daughters. But God enabled Horatio Spafford to see beyond the death of his daughters and see the glory that comes. I could have to do this without God, but God loves me and He's allowing me to endure this trial with Him. And I'm watching as difficult as it may be, that when I trust in God in those moments of chaos, God is in control. It is well, it is well with my soul. Do you recognize your need for dependency? Have you gotten rid of the distractions? You've not turned to God until those two things take place. Notice number two, we've got to trust God fully. We've got to trust God fully. If Habakkuk was going to keep his eyes off his trouble and on God, he had to believe that God was capable of handling what was going to come his way. A couple of weeks ago I told you that I do not have a, a like of roller coasters. Now I ride them. And I'll ride ones that go upside down and that are really high and, and I've done so because of peer pressure, but I just, I don't like them and here's why. For the two minutes that I'm riding them, I am envisioning every nut and every bolt, every part of that roller coaster, and I'm thinking someone didn't do their job. And what's going to happen is, is part of this thing's going to careen off of the tracks and I'm going to die. And so the whole experience is me holding on for dear life and thinking, I hope they did their job, I hope they did their job, I hope they did their job. And then the fool sitting next to me, his arms are in the air, he's hooping, woohoo, yeah, oh, this is great. And I'm like, that idiot doesn't know, Lord, forgive him, he know not what he does. And I hold on. Because I think that that lever thing that's gone over me that's going to hold this large carcass in place when we flip upside down, that's not funny, by the way, okay? That I'm holding it. I don't have any trust in that harness that it's going to hold me. So, so I'm ripping uh, fingernails into my hands because I'm holding on so tightly because that bolt isn't going to hold me. That lever isn't going to keep me where I need to be. I have no trust in the creator of that ride that that ride is going to keep me safe from the beginning to the end. And all the while, all the other ones that are on that ride are having the time of their life. Why? Because they can trust that the one who created it was faithful in taking care of it. That all they needed to do was enjoy the ride. Some of us right now don't trust God. 
and you're like me on the roller coaster of life right now. You're holding on and you're like, God, I know you missed it somewhere. God, I know you didn't tighten that bolt in my life in this area or that area. And so I'm going to believe that you didn't do it, so I have to do it. And so that harness goes on for life. God says, listen, hold on. In this world, you're going to have troubles. You're going to go upside down every once in a while. There's going to be sharp turns to the left and the right. It's going to get bumpy around here. Sometimes your fanny's going to lift off the seat. Get ready. And you're like, well, I know that God doesn't have it all figured out. I know that God hasn't taken care of all the different circumstances that may come. And then the people around you, their arms are in the air, and they're like, God, you're awesome. God, you're great. I love it. Even when tough times come, God, you're good, and your love endures forever, and they're enjoying the ride. The difference is, you don't trust, and they do. You believe that God's missed it somewhere, and because of that, you got to do His job instead of trusting fully that He's got it all figured out. Habakkuk says, I'm not going to try to figure this out. I'm not going to try to hold on for dear life because the harness that God's got me in, it's capable. It's going to hold me in there. And yeah, the trip is going to be rocky. There's going to be herks and jerks to it. We're going to go this way and we're going to go that way. There's going to be un, um, unprepared for slopes and stops and turns. And amidst all of that, instead of thinking, i got to protect myself, I'm going to trust God. And some of us right now are, quite frankly, not trusting God, and we are hating every bit of this life. Because you're more worried about the Creator than you're worried about being the one who's created. So how do we do this? How do we trust God? There are two things. I'll put them together. The way that we learn to trust God is by focusing on His Word and His ways. His Word and His ways. Notice in the text, Habakkuk says, I've heard the report of you. How did he hear these things? From the Word of God. As a little boy in Judah, he had learned the renown of God. Every day he would learn more and more of how God was faithful to his forefathers, the patriarchs, how he was faithful uh, to take care of them in times of great need. Every once in a while, I will catch in the morning... Uh, ESPN, and ESPN does something in the morning that I, I just love, and that's the top ten plays of the day before. And whether they're the top plays from the major league or professional teams, or every once in a while the ones I really like are the top plays of a high school or junior high thing. Usually it's a last second shot or some sort of miraculous goal that takes place. And they do these highlights, ten of them, every day. And what they in essence are saying is, listen, you missed a little, you missed a lot. You missed a lot. You missed the incredible. I want you to know that God's Word each and every day should be God's top ten plays of the day. And we watch them and we see, wow, look at what God did there. And look at what God did. Whoa, look at what God did in that circumstance. And, and each time I watch that, a couple questions come to mind. How did they do it? How can I do it? And wow, they're pretty awesome. And when we read the Scriptures, we need to say, Wow, God, how did you do that? And God, sure, I would love to do that. And wow, God, you're pretty amazing. When we focus in on His Word, we're going to be able to trust Him. I want you to know this morning that one of my greatest concerns of the church in America 
is that there is not revival in our churches because we don't know the God who can revive us. And why don't we know the God who He can revive us? Because study after study tells us that we as Christians don't know our Scriptures. So how can we know that God can do the miraculous in our day if we didn't know He did the miraculous the day before? We don't know God's capable of it because we haven't read the Scriptures. And sadly, in our churches today, the, the, the saying is, listen, don't bring your Bible, we'll put it on the screen. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to study the Scriptures. We'll give you the emotional and, and spiritual pep talk you need. And I'll tell you, I, I get it. That's entertaining. I get it that that moves. But listen, it may seem old-fashioned. It may seem dry. It may seem even boring at times. But God says God's people need to know who He is by studying the Scripture verse upon verse upon verse. And let His Word do the teaching. And so here we are, and we're seeing what is God doing? God's moving in the heart of Habakkuk. And we say, well, surely then, if God can move in the circumstances that Habakkuk was facing, surely He can work in my circumstances. We need to see His Word. Also, we need to see His ways. Notice that Habakkuk says, you can do this. I've heard the report of you, and your work, what you're doing, I fear. I stand in awe, literally is what that means. I am awestruck by what you are doing. How awestruck are you this morning by the work that God is doing in your life? How awestruck are you with regards to what God is doing in your family's life? How awestruck are you in what God is doing in the church that you're attending? How awestruck are you in what, how God is using you in your workplace or in your neighborhood or in your school? Do you see God on the move? And you would say, no, I don't, and that's God's fault. Or no, I don't, that's my family's fault. Or no, I don't, that's the church's fault. Or no, I don't, and we can come up with all of these things. Let me tell you, God is on the move, and God is working in people's lives. And if you're not experienced revival, you don't have to go any farther than yourself. Are you in awe of what He's doing? Listen, tomorrow we will be a part of an awe-inspiring eclipse. Hasn't happened since 1979. I'm awe-inspired by the math that got him to know what day it was going to happen today. That's pretty amazing. And so we're going to see God's handiwork. And we're going to stand in awe. And what God is saying each and every day should be an awe-inspiring moment because God is always on the move. Do you trust Him? Do you trust that He knows best. Finally, notice we need to tell others about his activity. I won't spend a lot of time here. We'll finish things up here in a moment, but it says, in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. What, what God is wanting us to do is he says, listen, I'm on the move. How are people going to know that? Through you and through me. As we are changed and we are moved, we're going to read and study the Scriptures and we're going to see what God did for others in the past. God has come through for His people in the past. God has been faithful to His people in the past. So how do I know? How do I know 
that tomorrow when trials and tribulation comes, when a bad medical report comes, when a bill that I never saw coming lands at my front door, when trouble within my family comes, when I lose my job, whatever the tumult and trouble that comes, how do I know that I will be equal to the task? The answer is because I've seen how God has taken frail, broken people in the past and has walked them through faithfully. David faced Goliath, and God walked him through it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood before an unrighteous nation and were put into a fiery furnace, and God was equal to the task in saving them. And we need to have faith that what God has done in the past, He will do in the future. We're going to study the book of Acts here in a couple weeks. And our our whole series is the title, Unfinished. What God started in the book of Acts is still alive and well today. Are we experiencing it? Or are we saying, oh, that's just something in the past. That's just a story from the olden days. Notice, we need to remember what God did for others in the past. And we need to also notice that we need to recognize what God is doing for us in the present. God is meeting our needs. God is carrying us through. God, when we are given bad reports, He takes care of us. He ministers to us. He gives us the help that we need. How is God going to make it known? By us telling other people what God's done in the past and what He's doing in today. How are we going to tell people about it? Through His Word. We're going to tell God we're so awe-inspired by His Word that we open it and we read it and we, we take stock of our lives and we see how God's Word has changed us and made us different than we were the day before. And we tell people, listen, this is the work that God is doing in my life. He's changing me. He's renewing me. He's reviving me. I am not the same, nor will I ever be the same because of what God has done. Listen, when we trust God fully and we turn to God and we tell others of His activity, then and only then will we experience true revival. Then and only then will we experience what the prophet Habakkuk was. And when we do that, when we take this posture, as we're going to learn next week, God opens up the curtains of what He's going to do and He knocks our socks off of of us because of what we see about Him and about what He's going to do in the days to come. Experience revival. Join with me in seeking the face of God, experiencing all that He has to offer us and let Him knock our socks off.